Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. I'll be reading verses 10 through 16. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of this word. We thank you for those imperatives of Scripture that we are uh, to follow. Lord, we pray as we study your word this morning, as we hear your word preached, that your spirit would do his work on our hearts, and that we would be convicted and challenged, and, and that we would indeed be given power to walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. So we pick back up in 1 Peter. Now remember that the Apostle, Paul, uh, Apostle Peter is trying to encourage suffering Christians to persevere. That's his audience, suffering Christians, and he's calling them to persevere. He's reminded them that they are chosen by the Father. He's reminded them that they're being sanctified by the Spirit and redeemed by the blood of Christ. He's reminded them of the new birth, their inheritance, which is imperishable and undefiled, their, their protection by the very power of God. He's taught them that their various trials are to prove their faith. Right? And that faith is more precious than gold, which is perishable. He's taught them that faith is more important now than sight. Right? Though they have not seen Jesus, they love Him. No less than the salvation of their souls will come by that faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now in verse 10, he encourages his brothers and sisters in the church by turning to the work of the prophets. The work of the prophets in days past. Um, what he is teaching them is that their faith is based upon what is old, not what is new and fashionable. Right? It's founded upon Jesus Christ, but what was written about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was produced over the course of many millennia. In this sense, the prophets serve not merely themselves, but all people who have followed them 
and who will follow them through all ages. Verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you. Right? It is inevitably true that anyone who has saving faith in Jesus Christ, anyone who has saving faith in Jesus Christ, has had that faith come not by a vision, not by sudden direct revelation, but by the ministry of the Spirit through the Word of God, through what was written down by those prophets. Would any of us claim that we came to faith away from the reading and preaching of God's Word? Right, I would hope not. The inspired Word of God written by holy men who were carried along by the Holy Spirit is always used by God to draw men to Himself. It is the Word of God that does that drawing. Right? The Apostle Paul makes this clear. In Romans 10, he writes, How will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. That's the normal process. That is the repeated process of the Holy Spirit working through the Word and through the preached Word. This is why we insist on the preaching of the Word. Right? This is why we insist that worship is centered around and the height of worship is the preached Word. And we don't change our worship services into movies. Right? which would be much more compelling, right? The production value would be much greater. They would probably fix your attention even better. But we don't use movies, we don't use light shows. This is why your parents' children insist that you read your Bibles regularly. Because no one came to faith without butting up against the Scriptures. I remember reading Scripture, and, and this was when I was in college, I remember reading Scripture and only appreciating it because it was old and ancient. Right? It has some value because it's just it's old. It's dusty, and, and there has to be some wisdom in there from previous ages. But I also remember reading it and coming to conviction over my sin and turning to Christ. Not just reading about Christ, but um, reading, reading about my Savior. And then realizing that not only was the writings of the prophets and the apostles old and ancient, but that it was the work of the prophets of God through the ages. God has always given testimony of His existence through creation. Right? He's always given testimony to his existence through his creation, but he has also always given testimony of his son through the writing of the prophets. Right? After his resurrection from the dead, Jesus, himself, Jesus taught a few men on the road to Emmaus. You remember this. Here's, here's what happened. This is from the end of Luke's gospel. And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking 
with each other about all these things which had taken place. And while they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, The things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So note that last verse. Beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all of the scriptures. That, my friends, is exactly what the Apostle Peter is, is stating here in his letter. These prophets, looking for the redemption of Israel, made careful searches and inquiries, and by the Spirit wrote inspired words which revealed the person and the time, and note particularly the sufferings of Jesus and the glories to follow. All of these riches are in the Old Testament. Yes, made explicit in the New Testament, but there in the Old Testament, there by the prophets. Here's one example, Isaiah, writing seven centuries or so before the fullness of time when Jesus was incarnated, wrote this from Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, he is capitalized in this passage, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied, and by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Now that's an astonishing passage. And what's astonishing about that passage is how it predicts so much about the Son of God during his work on earth. And And it is so clear to us who live after the fact, after the cross. And also important is that it predicted, just like it says here in verse 11 in 1 Peter, it predicted Christ's sufferings. It's very clear. Any notion that the Savior would be a triumphant warrior or a political genius or or a powerful intellectual is dispelled by these scriptures. The Savior would be a, a simple, suffering servant. Simple, suffering servant. He would be one rejected. He would not be liked. He would be despised. Right? He would be a victim of man's cruelty, and he would be scourged, and by his scourging, we would be healed. For for suffering Christians, the message of the suffering of Christ would be incredible encouragement, wouldn't it? Incredible encouragement knowing that, that our Master showed us the way before us in suffering. The prophets, all the prophets announced these glorious truths. And every Christian who has ever lived has taken their seat at the feet of those prophets and apostles, learning about themselves and about their gracious God. And so we are people of this book. We are people of the Scriptures. As I said before, we are not people who believe... We are are people who most certainly believe in the supernatural, that all truth is not discovered by science alone, but that God speaks through chosen men. Without the Scriptures, we'd, we'd all be groping about in the darkness with no way of knowing Jesus Christ. No way of knowing. If, if we didn't have the Scriptures, 
Christ would be forgotten. Just think of what history in the past week you've forgotten of your own life. Right? I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning. And, and that's, that's what it would be if we did not have inspired scriptures. Uh, that's why we write books today. That's why we memorialize things so that we don't forget things. And here in the scripture, we have inspired words, right? Without the scriptures, we'd be groping around in the darkness. And with the scriptures, though, we are on a path illumined by all those torches that were lit by the prophets and apostles. So the gospel of Jesus Christ is not at all faddish. It's not a fad. It's the age-old news of the prophets, all of whom revealed the substitutionary suffering of Jesus, the satisfaction of the Holy Father through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the crushing of the head of the serpent right by the seed of the woman. One theme. At the end of verse 12, after the apostle Peter has encouraged the brethren by speaking of the work of the prophets, note that he says this, things into which angels long to look. Think about this. Peter is trying to encourage those who are suffering for their faith in Christ. He's telling them that they've had their eyes open to the work God through the ages, the depository of the Holy Spirit from long ago, the work of God after his creation to all those um, he calls to himself to be saved. And so glorious is that provision of God, so wonderful is his fatherly goodness in, in that work that angels are curious. Angels are sitting by and in awe of what God is doing. Those angels have, but, but think of it, those angels have long known of God's goodness. They've served God since they were made. They've sung His praises. They've done His work. But this work, this work of salvation, of sinful man, they're in awe of. God has done a work of such grace, grandeur, and glory that angels are amazed and gripped. Right, and are filled with holy wonder that we sinful, sinful humans, sinful mankind should be so richly blessed. They're, they're in awe of that. Perhaps they're made a little bit, if it's possible for angels to be angry, perhaps they're a little bit angry about it. The angels sit back and look on with, with gaping mouths as rebellious man is lovingly redeemed. They see the Son of God taking on flesh, the Son of God that they've known. They see Him taking on flesh and the elevation of man's glory above even their own, and they're in awe. So stop, dear brothers and sisters, stop thinking there is no glory in the Christian faith. Right? Have you forgotten that you are the fulfillment of God's eternal plan announced by the prophets and accomplished by Jesus Christ? There's no excuse for our boredom with the Scriptures. There's no excuse for it. And our lack of praise and our lack of thanksgiving to a stupendously gracious God. As the Apostle Peter in a few verses reminds us, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver, silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with 
precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. After all of that, in verse 13, we get a therefore, which always indicates conclusions that fall out from what precedes, right? Is it possible to summarize what the apostle writes in verses 1 through 12? I think it is. I think, I think it's possible. It's this, look what God has done. Look at what God has done. Chosen, sanctified, redeemed, birthed again, raised from the dead, given an inheritance, worked in faith, saved souls, spoke by the prophets, all gazed upon by the angels, therefore, what? Well, it culminates in verse 16, therefore you shall be holy, for I am holy. That's the culmination. In other words, since God has been so mindful of you, since God has, been, uh, has worked out your salvation, since God has been fearfully gracious, walk in holiness. Our response to the salvation of God is not inactive navel-gazing, but jumping into action. To come alive through the inward work of the Holy Spirit means action. Right? It means nothing less than finally having power over the flesh that had you in its grip. Right? Peter says, prepare your minds for action. Imagine if you saw an announcement for a, a mining job. You apply, you get interviewed, you say in the interview that you have such and such experience, the employer then gets you the training to do the actual job you've been hired to do. You go through all this training and it's your first day on the job, but instead of using the training and the strength you have to do the gracious, you know, you, to do what the gracious employer prepared you to do, you clock in, you proceed to a corner, you lay down and you go to sleep. Just doesn't make sense. What possible excuse could you have other than working for a union. You could have no excuse. You've been shaped by that employer to do a particular job. How much more is this true of God's work in our souls? We haven't just been trained for the job, we've been given the Holy Spirit. We've been, we've been changed in the very fabric of our being. We've been radically transformed by the renewing of the Spirit. And yet, we think then that the remainder of the Christian's life is to be spent napping. It's to be spent taking your ease and never making progress. It makes no sense. It makes no sense that Christianity would lead to anything other than Rigor, hard work, right? I've been listening to a, a history of the great siege of Malta. In 1565, Suleiman, the very powerful Ottoman Empire, emperor, determined to take Malta. Malta's that little island that's off of, south of Sicily, right? right in the middle of the Mediterranean. 
Um, and you'll remember that Malta was also the place that, um, where the Apostle Paul was rescued after shipwreck in Acts 28. And there is a bay in Malta today called, uh, the, I think, the Bay of St. Paul. Um, if taken, the island would have served as a base of operations to invade Europe through Sicily and then Italy. He, and Suleiman sent a huge force to accomplish the task. 193 sailing vessels. I mean, Malta's like a, I mean, what is it, uh, 30, 30 miles by 20 miles? It's not a huge island. He sent 193 sailing vessels and around 30,000 troops. And the knights of the Order of St. John and the people of Malta were massively outnumbered. They numbered 6,000. So this is a five to one battle. But they had a mind to work. They had a mind to work. The commander of the troops was Grand Master um, Lavalette, a, a knight of the Order of St. John. And what did he do when he knew the Ottomans were on their way to attack? What would he do? Well, he prepared. That's all he did. He prepared. He built forts. He stocked those forts. He moved the commoners into those forts. He, he stockpiled water. He stockpiled food. He prepared the land. He set up defenses in the sea and in the water. I mean, etc., etc., etc. The list goes on. And through those preparations and some strategic decisions and some wonderful providences, the island of Malta resisted that massive force of Muslims. It's known as one of the most amazing victories in military history. And it was won because they had a man, one who was wise, but who prepared. Who prepared. Apparently there, there's a... There's, there's also a famous battle in World War II in Malta um, that took place on the same ground. But what if Lavalette hadn't prepared? Right? What if he refused to acknowledge that there was an enemy prowling around like a roaring lion seeking some island to devour? Right? What if he had been a proud man who, like many men, simply scoffed and said, how dare Suleiman come up against the knight's hospitaller? Right? How dare he? Does he not know of our victories? What if they had not trained their bodies for combat in that cumbersome and heavy and hot armor? Malta would have fallen. And what if Malta would have fallen? Well, Sicily would have fallen. And what if Sicily fell? Well, maybe Italy fell. And what if Italy fell? Well, then Europe falls. And what's happening in 1565 in Europe? The Reformation is happening. And so we may not be in church today if Lavalette hadn't simply prepared for battle. So what, what about our, our life in Christ? Right? If, if God has given you everything you need for battle... If God has put His Spirit within you, if God has done everything needed to free you from your slavery to sin and to make you His slave, if God has made it so that you are not under obligation to obey the flesh with its lusts 
and then you refuse to rigorously pursue holiness, well, what then? Well, like Malta would have, you will fall. You will fall. You will suffer shipwreck of your faith. You will give yourself to a sin like that of David's, and the sword will not depart from your household. So, you may be saved as through fire, but you will bring shame upon the name of Christ and pain upon yourself. And so prepare your minds for action. Action. I mean, how many find it hard even to listen to a sermon this morning? Right? You find it difficult. You're struggling with your flesh. You're not prepared for action. We like the indicatives of Scripture, right? God has done everything for our salvation from first to last. We love those indicatives. God has done this. God has done that. There are some... There are some preachers and pastors who only focus on those indicatives. God has done this and you're good. But those imperatives, what of those? We're not such big fans of those imperatives. But Peter shows us that it only makes sense that action follows from our redemption. Right? Action is the only proper work for somebody who has been set free from sin. I mean, it's a wonderful opportunity. Set free from sin, maybe I should get to work. Maybe I should use that strength to, to enter battle. Right? Action is the only proper work for someone who has been given all the necessary tools by, by God Almighty to fight. So many of us, though, have been knighted by God only immediately upon that honor, taking our sword and melting it down into a goblet by which we can drink and get drunk. We think that the Christian life is one of passivity rather than one of action. The Apostle Paul is going to destroy that thought over the course of this letter and the next. Is that depressing to you? You're thinking, can't we just talk about grace and grace and grace? Can't we just talk about grace and grace and grace? And more grace and all those wonderful indicatives of Scripture? Well, we can and we should, but not without jumping up with vigor after those indicatives to join the fight. American Christians are like, they're like Navy SEALs who really never want to see any action. And have you ever known one of our elite troops not to want to see action? They want to use. They, they are so tired of preparing. They want to do. Right? We have ridiculous resources to learn God's Word. Books everywhere. Amazing churches. Money, money, money. And yet we sleep. We sleep. We have no courage for the fight. We so easily forget who we are in Christ. And forgetting that, we take a nap when it comes to pursuing holiness. And the pursuit of holiness, dear brothers and sisters, should be the fruit of knowing Jesus Christ. Every time we hear of His work, we should spring into action. 
What is the goal of that action? Nothing less than complete conformity to the character of God. That's the goal. That simple little goal. Complete conformity to the character of God. Nothing less than complete conformity to the great, gracious, soul-winning, powerful, strong God who has made Himself known. Nothing less than following Jesus Christ into battle to slay sin. Have you been lazy? Have you given yourself a rest? Have you lost so many battles that you hesitate to enter another? Have you forgotten your first love? Well, hear what the Apostle Peter says, and do not hesitate to move. You have been remade for this moment, right? Prepare your minds for action. Get to work. Spurgeon gets the second to last word this morning. Here's what he says on a sermon on this passage. I delight in preaching the gospel when I am conscious that the Lord is with me. But there are times when I have to say, I do not feel fit for this great task. Whenever that is true of any of us, we must hear Peter saying to us, gird up the loins of your mind. And that is a more literal translation of prepare your minds for action. Gird up your loins. It's a, it's a, it's a picture of, of, a, of a man lifting his skirts, his, his robes, and being able then to, to um, move, Right? So, he says, whenever this is true of us, we must hear Peter saying to us, gird up the loins of your mind. Brother, it is the devil who wants to keep you from serving the Savior. He expects that God is going to be with you and to bless you, so he tries to unfit you for service. Then say, by the grace of God, I mean to do it, and if ever in my life I poured out my very soul, it shall be now. Instead of running away from the task, I will run to it, Into the very center of the enemy will I rush like David when he said, By thee I have run through a troop, and by my God have I leaped over a wall. Oh, for that firm putting down of the foot, that steadfast determination that the duty of the hour shall be performed, and the privilege of the hour shall be enjoyed. We will not be drifted from it, or driven from it, or bribed from it. What have you and I to do with going to sleep. Those who are children of darkness may sleep in the night, but we are children of the day. The sun of righteousness has risen upon us, so let us not sleep as others do, but let us gird up the loins of our mind, and in the name of the Most High God, let us resolve not to be found half-hearted and lukewarm, but to be wide awake and all alive in the service of our Lord. You serve a great and powerful God. You can overcome your lusts. You can be kind to your siblings and have a heart filled with love toward them even when they're annoying. You can be patient. You can be gentle. You can go without. You can be holy as God is holy, but only if you continually prepare your minds for action. This is the only way 
that you will be able to overcome those sins which so easily entangle us.